Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Listeners, and welcome to Ohio Mysteries. You're listening to a clip of Have You Ever Seen the Rain, a unique version of a classic by Nimbus Cloud. Nimbus Cloud is our featured Ohio musical artist tonight, so hang out with us to the end of the podcast. We'll tell you all about him and let you listen to that entire song. But right now, let's throw another log on the fire, campers. Let's dig up a new Ohio mystery. I'm your co-host, Steve Yoder, and with me is our award-winning journalist, Paula Schleiss, who spent 30 years telling these kinds of stories for the Akerbeka Journal. Hi, everybody. On October 9, 1973, authorities in Wadsworth, Ohio, were called to the Wadsworth Foundry for a gruesome discovery. One of the employees had been burned alive in a blast furnace. The investigation was relatively short, at least from the public's perspective. An Ohio fire marshal's report called it an industrial accident, and the death of Benny Mostiller was limited to a single short newspaper story then never heard about again. We now know that authorities never thought Benny's death was an industrial accident. Almost certainly, it was homicide, with a killer whose identity will never be known. The author of that book, Mike Berg, is going to join us in a few minutes. Mike spent 38 years with the police department in the nearby Wayne County city of Rittman, rising all the way up to chief of police before he retired in 2016. His recent book, done in conjunction with the Wadsworth Area Historical Society, is called Wadsworth Area Homicides and Deaths of Suspicious Nature. And when it comes to the most confounding of those suspicious deaths, Chief Berg said Benny Mostiller is at the top of his list. Before we talk to the chief, let me tell you more about this one incident in his book. Because while Benny Mostiller will never get justice, at least for our short time here, we can acknowledge that his life ended unfairly and too soon. 
Benny William Mosteller was born in 1917 in Holland, Georgia. That's a small, unincorporated crossroads, about an hour and a half's drive northwest of Atlanta. When Benny was in his mid-30s, he made the move to Akron, Ohio. We don't know exactly why, but Northeast Ohio was known to attract a lot of laborers from the South to fill its steel companies, its auto plants, its rubber factories, and of course, all of the many businesses that supported those industries. I don't know if Benny brought his nickname with him or earned it while he was there, but friends and family called him Blue Steel. And apparently, it was a name they used frequently enough that they even included it in the title of his obituary. At some point, Benny found employment at the Wadsworth Foundry. The foundry, as fate would have it, was born the same year as Benny, in 1917. It was a metal manufacturer that employed about 150 people, and they made castings for use in things like pumps, electric motors, and machine tools. The foundry was at 142 Auble Street in Wadsworth. That's a blue-collar community in Medina County with a reputation for being quaint and family-friendly. In 1973, its population was just over 13,000. Benny didn't live there. He commuted from Akron, where he lived on Noble Street and was an active member of the Greater Bethel Baptist Church. He was originally married to a woman named Ella, but that didn't work out. The couple divorced in 1964 and both eventually remarried. Benny's second wife was Robbie, a woman who brought several children to the union. Benny became a stepdad to four sons and two daughters, and by 1973, they had made him a step-grandpa ten times over. Now, on October 9 that year, the 56-year-old Benny went to work for his regular evening shift. Part of Benny's job was to clean the cold furnace and get it ready for the morning run. The equipment he was cleaning that day was called a cupola furnace. It's a melting device so hot it can turn cast iron into liquid. It's shaped like a huge cylinder with a bottom that is fitted with doors that swing down and out. And Benny would use a ladder to climb up into the furnace to clean it out. A workman passing by the furnace that night saw Benny as he was climbing the ladder. But a bit later, a night supervisor noticed Benny was missing, and he went looking for him. He found Benny just shortly after midnight. Benny was still clinging to the ladder, as if he had tried to flee the fire of a furnace that should not have been lit. Two Wadsworth fire truckers responded to the company's call for help. Firefighters detached Benny from the ladder, but there was nothing else they could do for him. As I said earlier, this incident was reported in area newspapers, a small inside story described as an industrial accident, then never revisited. But inside the police station, detectives knew better. For starters, the furnace could only be lit by a long lighter, not unlike the way one might start a grill. And Benny certainly didn't light it himself. Now, 
deaths associated with blast furnaces are exceedingly rare. According to the U.S. Department of Labor, in the past 35 years, there have been fewer than 20 deaths across the country related to such furnaces. And I couldn't find a single accident described like the one that involved Benny. Authorities knew that even back then, in 1973, Ohio's Bureau of Criminal Investigation came in and tested the setup to prove Benny could not have done it. So if not Benny, then who? There was no obvious motive. By all accounts, Benny was well-liked, and investigators couldn't find anyone who meant him harm or had a bad word to say about him. Polygraphs were given to every employee working that day, and they all passed. None of them admitted to hearing or seeing anything out of order that night. One theory was that maybe it was a prank that went too far, that maybe someone thought igniting the furnace would scare Benny, but that he'd have enough time to escape the heat. One police officer, Carl Godsey, said, I know he was killed. I just don't know by who or why. Benny's body was returned to Holland, Georgia for burial. A month after his death, his wife, Robbie, took out a large classified ad in the Akron Beacon Journal to thank relatives, friends, and neighbors for their support. She also thanked wine merchant restaurant, Turner Funeral Home, and the employees of Wadsworth Foundry, although many suspected one of those employees was her husband's killer. So let's welcome to Ohio Mysteries, Mike Berg, the author of Wadsworth Area Homicides and Deaths of Suspicious Nature. It is Ryan here and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper? A woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver. I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, were prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18. Plus. I'm Ken Harbaugh, host of the new Medal of Honor podcast from Evergreen Podcasts, brought to you in partnership with the National Medal of Honor Museum. In each three-minute episode, we'll learn about a different service member who distinguished him or herself through an act of valor. We'll include stories from the Civil War to Iraq and Afghanistan, and from all branches of the military. We'll talk about service members who were overlooked for the medal at first due to their race or religion, and about those who were celebrated at the time. We'll hear stories of soldiers like Audie Murphy, future Hollywood star who mounted a burning tank to hold off German infantry in World War II. And people like Dr. Mary Edwards Walker, a Civil War Army doctor and the only woman to receive the Medal of Honor so far. Learn about these heroes and more wherever you get your podcasts. Well, we are welcoming to our program, Mike Berg. Mike, how are you today? Very good. Thank you for having me. Oh, well, thank you for being with us. Listen, why don't you tell our listeners a little bit about yourself? Well, I'm a Wadsworth native and uh, 
knew from age 14 that I wanted to be a policeman. Once out of Wadsworth High School, class of 72, I uh, went to work for Norton PD as a dispatcher for four and a half years, then went to Rittman PD as a patrolman and stayed there for 38 and a half years. And uh, I was uh, there as a patrolman, a sergeant, and uh, my last nine years were as chief. And in 1992, I was fortunate enough to graduate from the FBI National Academy. What a wonderful career. You know, I think of Rittman as being kind of a really quaint, small, cozy kind of town. In your career there, did you ever have any, you know, extraordinary cases? Yeah, in fact, just uh, just prior to, to my retirement, several years before, we had a, a young guy who admitted to being on some private property looking for a place to poach deer, and he found a human femur. My guys went out and secured the scene, and then, of course, BCI, uh, they came out, and they did a little excavating of their own and determined that the, that the bones that were there and the bones that were found were indeed uh, human. So once that was determined, then, of course, it became a coroner's case, and the coroner came out. She called in a, a group of uh, forensic anthropologists from Mercyhurst College in uh, Pennsylvania, and they did an all-day dig out there. And long story short, after about two years, we actually found out who this person was and was able to return the bones to the family. And the gentleman was uh, buried in, I believe it was Minnesota, with his parents. Wow. What were the circumstances of his death? Did you Were you able to piece that together at all? Yeah, we actually found a sister who lived in Orville, and she said that he, he lived alone. He worked at, uh, well, at that particular time, it would have been the box board, the, the big paper company that was in Ritman. He loved to go walking in the woods. And every time she talked to him, he'd say, oh, I saw a fox today. Or I saw, he loved going out walking in the woods. He also had considerable health problems. And, of course, with only bones left. And he passed away in 1963. He laid out there that long. So it she, could have been he, completely natural. Yeah, they figured that he just he had numerous health issues, and they figured he was just out for one of his regular walks in the woods because he was definitely way back in the woods and just had some a health emergency of some sort and passed away out there in the woods. That is amazing. It must have been so interesting for you to see the process, the anthropological part of it, and just how the whole system came together to identify this man and, and get his bones to his family. It was very interesting, and, and I, uh, I really liked watching the, uh, the, the forensic anthropologists from Nurse Mercyhurst do their thing. That was, that was really interesting. I mean, you see it, you know, on all the true crime shows, but to see it firsthand, it was really a, really a treat for me. Oh, yeah. I mean, there are probably police chiefs in larger cities that never get that opportunity. So what a treat for you. Now, when did you decide you wanted to write this book? Had you been like sort of collecting this information throughout your career? No, it started in 2009. Uh, like I said, I'm a Wadsworth native and then I still live here. And uh, but working in Ritman, the, the chief in Wadsworth at the time, Dave Singleton, he and I have been friends for a long, long, long time, uh, back to when we were both patrolmen. And um, 
he knew that I was interested in local law enforcement history. And uh, in 2009, Wadsworth was doing this massive records purge, and they came across a, a black and white 8 by 10 picture of what appeared to be a fatal car crash, but there were just there were two people laying in the street in a crashed car and an officer standing there. It wasn't marked. So he called me and says, hey, can you stop by on your way home? And I stopped by to take a look at the picture, and I said, well, I don't know what this is, but I recognize the officer. So I had him make me a copy of the picture, and I took it uh, to that officer who was long since retired. He said, oh, yeah, I said, that, uh, that wasn't a fatal car crash. He goes, that was a, uh, a murder-suicide and gave me the story. And then I got to thinking, well, how many others had there been that we don't know about or that uh, haven't been chronicled or, or uh, written down or the lost to history or that sort of thing? So at that point in 2009, I started doing some research here and there, uh, mostly uh, two, my, my two favorite spots are the, uh, the Johnson House in, in uh, Wadsworth, which is run by the Wadsworth Area Historical Society. They have a research room on the second floor. And then my, my number two spot is the uh, Wadsworth Library's uh, local history room, because they have all the old Wadsworth newspapers on uh, microfiche that you can look through and uh, make copies of articles. So that's where it all started. Now, you had cases that went back quite a bit. Did you go in, into the 1800s with some of your cases? Yes, the first one was 1824. Oh, wow. Wow. What a trip to into the past that must have been for you. How many murders and suspicious deaths did you cover in total in that book? There were 47 cases out of Wadsworth. There were 33 homicides, 10 deaths of suspicious nature, and four that were unconfirmed. And I called them unconfirmed because I found some information that leads me to believe that something happened, and, and it, it looks like something happened, but I could never find any documentation that it happened. And then at the end of the book, uh, I put uh, the 12 homicides uh, uh, cases from Rittman, but I just did brief, very brief um, uh, synopsis of each one of those. And then I ended the book with a double unsolved uh, suspicious nature death uh, to close the book out. But in, in the 47 Wadsworth cases, I also put in each case when I could, I put a map of, um, of where it occurred in the city. And then I also put a picture of the location where it occurred, if the location was still standing. I asked you to pick out one of the stories um, for us to feature. And Benny Mostiller is the one that came to your mind. Why did that case, of all of those cases, that you've you researched, why did that one stick out to you? Well, it was it was unsolved, and uh, the investigating officer is still alive. So I had a number of, uh, of uh, conversations with him, and uh, it, it, that was one of the frustrating ones. Well, not so much as frustrating as the very old ones, because because that, that's where I ran into a problem with writing the book. Was it was with my mind because. On the, the very old cases were frustrating to me because I'm writing them and I'm saying, well, why didn't they just do this? And then you know, I realized, well, it's because they didn't have the tools and technology that we have today. And uh, so that's what made the old ones frustrating to me. But but Benny's, I thought that I thought that one could have been 
could have been solved. I mean, everybody you talk to has theories about it, but uh, it was it was interesting that they gave everyone polygraphs and everyone passed. And I just I don't know something's strange there. I was really intrigued by this case. I mean, it was really kind of gruesome. I, I was trying to figure out, was he, the, he was taken from the ladder. So clearly he was on the ladder when they found him. Do you think that that furnace, do you think like fire engulfed him or did he die from the heat? Well, I don't know. He was. I see. That's it. There's just. A, there's so much missing there, and also, you know, even to the investigating officers, because the body was removed before they even got there, so they didn't actually see him in the furnace. The investigating officer didn't. The fire department did. So, you know, I have a couple theories of my own, uh, but who knows? You know, was he was he trying to escape the fire, or was he on the ladder when the atmosphere around him ignited you know i don't know right i was wondering if he was like coming down the ladder like oh no this just got ignited i don't know enough about those furnaces to know whether he had the time to make that decision and was actually trying to climb down the ladder but you said you had a couple of theories i know that another detective one of his theories was that it might have been a prank that went wrong how does that theory stack up with your own is that a possibility well uh, that was the investigating officers the way he explained it to me was that of course the furnace is a is a confined area and he was in there cleaning it so the, the cleaning solution was probably flammable. You know, that was back in the 70s. I don't know what the OSHA requirements were at that time for ventilation, even if there were any. I don't know. But he said that um, uh, there was a little metal flap on the outside of the furnace that you would move aside, and there would, that would uh, reveal a hole that went into the furnace. And what they had was a very long, uh, what he explained it as a giant uh uh, grill lighter, uh, and he said when they would turn the furnace on, they would of course start the gas, move this little flap out of the way, put the igniter in the furnace, and it would just spark it, you know, to to ignite the gas in the in the furnace. He thinks that someone not thinking that uh, about the uh, the environment that Benny was in with the, with the cleaning solution and all was just going to spook him with the spark. And put this, put the igniter in there, and sparked it just to just to get him, you know, just to scare him a little bit. And the the uh, either the solution in the confined space that he was in, the atmosphere he was in, immediately lit, and then of course it would go right out uh, once the once the solution was burned. And uh, so that would be the reason that the furnace would would remain cold. Or it was it was on his coveralls or whatever he was wearing in there, and and those lit, and that's what started the fire. Is that your favorite theory, or did you have another one? Oh, I had a couple that I would just you know the more I read it, like like you said, there's not a lot to you know you really don't know. Uh, sure. Do you want to I, share them? Sure. I, I thought could the possibility, but he went to started to come out of of the furnace to, to climb the ladder and. Maybe he dropped a wrench. I don't even know if he had a wrench with him. But if he dropped it and it sparked when it, when it hit the floor of the furnace, that could have ignited an a atmosphere that's, that's rich in, uh, in a solution like that. 
or maybe you know it was it was break time stopped to take a cigarette break without thinking and you know lit, lit up a cigarette and off you know boom the the interior of the first and and neither of those would be like a flash fire which would you know ignite just you know while the fumes were in the furnace and then once the fumes were concerned by the fire they would go out and that would keep the furnace cold and that would also mean that uh, all of the uh, employees could pass a polygraph test you know i i guess i didn't realize well i guess i do now that i think about it but you're saying when they found Benny, the furnace was cold, so the fire that killed him was brief, fierce enough to kill him, but then went out pretty quickly, and by the time they found him, the, there was no fire. Correct. Okay. All right. Got it. Thank you for that clarification. And I see that you're kind of relying on the idea that if everybody passed a polygraph, that adds a little more weight to maybe it was something Benny had done himself. You know, I don't know if if, if OSHA had any like uh, at that time, if they had any like ventilation, you know, now they have ventilation uh, requirements and and uh, respirator requirements and you know usually you have to have two people in that sort of thing or a safety person and i don't think that they had them back at that time yeah what an interesting case now aside from benny why don't you tell us another story what's another story in your book that really sticks out in your mind probably one of the first ones about uh, poor little lily burkbeck uh, she was five years old and uh, poisoned by her stepmother. Oh, um, when was that? That was 1899. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Hey there! I'm Hannah. And I'm Audrey. We are a sister filmmaking duo and co-hosts of Sleepover Cinema, our show where we analyze the films that created the collective unconscious of the girls, gays, and theys of the late 90s and early 2000s. Princess Diaries, The Cheetah Girls, Aquamarine, Cinderella, the one starring Brandy. We haven't stopped thinking about these movies since we first saw them, and we want you to rewatch them and review them with us. Are these movies as bad as critics would have us believe? Do we even care if they are? We are always unpacking that very question on Sleepover Cinema. Check out Sleepover Cinema wherever you get your podcasts or at evergreenpodcasts.com. See you soon. 1899. So tell us a little bit about about how that went down. Her father and a woman he was staying with, uh, who I, I mean, I called her a stepmother. I don't didn't, don't know if they were married or not. Came from England and was staying with um, 
relatives here in, in Wadsworth Township. People were saying, you know, that the Lily didn't look good. And, and they said the, the, the father and the woman he lived with, the, the, the evil stepmother, I call her in the book, um, yeah. said, that, said that she had a, uh, a seizure, fell out of bed and hit her head. And uh, through the investigation, poor Lily was exhumed twice. They found traces of arsenic, and the doctor down there, the lab down there, wanted more organs, so they dug poor Lily up again. They sent more organs down, and they found even more arsenic. Now, the weird thing is, is that the, the father and this woman were arrested and charged, charged with adultery. Oh, that was a crime back then. Yes. Yeah. And they were sentenced to Medina County Jail, and they spent their jail time, and people were in an uproar because the prosecutor at the time took the murder or the death of Lily to a grand jury before he got the results back from Ohio State. And Lily was buried in Woodlawn Cemetery in Wadsworth on Thanksgiving Day in an unmarked grave, and I never found out any more about the, uh, uh, the the case. And so I hate stories with uh, with no ending. So I um, contacted Common Police Court, and, and the, the ladies there in the archive division, oh, they are so wonderful. They, they dug and dug and dug. And found absolutely no case where uh, where the father or the woman was, was ever charged with anything other than the adultery. Did they actually serve time for their adultery? I think 10 days. 10 days? <laughs> yeah. Oh, that's funny. Well, what is next for you, Chief? You got another book in you? Actually, sitting here beside me on a flash drive, I do, but it won't be it won't be one uh, that, that uh, you'll be talking about. I don't think it's not not quite your uh, your, your cup of tea there. No this mysteries one, in there. Uh, no, well, yeah, but not really. <laughs> that was I, I in doing the Wadsworth area homicide book. You know, I come across a lot of locations and stuff, and and I um, decided to do one, um, and I just started it actually on uh, Wadsworth, Ohio, how the streets got their names. And it's basically uh, for Wadsworth transplants or younger generations of, of Wadsworthites who uh, might not know, you know who some of the streets are named after or why and what these people did to get streets named after them. So that's what I'm working on now. That That is really interesting that you bring that up because the week before your episode here is airing. So let me put it this way, because last week we did an episode uh, about Peg and Twistle, a woman who had spent some time in Ohio. She ended up killing herself by jumping off the H in the Hollywood sign out in in Hollywood, California. But we went on to tell an extra bonus story about how Hollywood was named and designed and owned by a woman from Ohio. And one of the things we learned was that this woman named the original streets in Hollywood 
for friends, family, and places back in Ohio, in Hicksville and Canton. But we couldn't find a list. I was like, we need a list of what the Hollywood streets are and what the connection to Ohio was. So if somebody had done a book like you're going to do, we could have got those questions answered. Yeah, exactly. That's that's what I said. Basically, it's for ones with transplants and and the younger generation so that, you know, they they know who, who some of these people are. Yeah. Well, good for you for preserving that history before it's lost, because the further you get away from those kinds of stories, the more the less likely are you able, you're able to find the details that you need. So exactly. good. Good for you. Well, Chief, thank you so much for joining us tonight. And thanks for writing a, a great book. Now, I understand you, there was a small printing issued and it sold out, but yes. there might be a second printing coming. Yes, I, I did the. Everything on the book up to the point of paying for it. <laughs> I uh, I worked with the printer and everything and, and got it all set up. And then I went looking for funding. And the Wadsworth Area Historical Society uh, came up with the funding to uh, to fund the book. And uh, they had 100 books printed and they went pretty quickly. Just ordered another 70 and they should be out uh, yet this week. I would say either Thursday or Friday of this week. So that is the Wadsworth Area Historical Society. I have a feeling those books are going to go fast, so I'm not even going to tell people, you know, to hope that they can get them. But you can also see this book at the Wadsworth uh, Library. Uh, Yeah, well, actually, um, the Historical Society, like a lot of other things, uh, is affected by COVID, so they are closed. The, The Johnson House is closed. However... Project Learn owns a used bookstore downtown called The Bookshelf, uh, which is at 130 Main Street, right on the square in Wadsworth, and they are going to sell them in there for the Historical Society. Oh, good. Okay. So I would say either Thursday or Friday they should be in, in the bookshelf downtown. All right. Well, that by the time this episode's run, that will be um, about a week and a half old. So if you're interested, go check it out. And if for some reason they have sold out, just know that when the pandemic is over, you're going to be able to go to the library and uh, and find this book there. At right. least you got a, got a copy preserved the, over there. Yeah, it's in the uh, local history room at the Wadsworth Library. Got it. Very good. Well, Chief, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you for inviting me. That's it for tonight, listeners. For photos, news, clippings, and more on this and every episode, hop on over to our website, ohiomysteries.com. And that brings us to tonight's featured Ohio musical artist. Nimbus Cloud is the working name of one Terry Gibbs, a talented musician from Cleveland, Ohio, who specializes in indie rock and indie pop. Terry is a one-man show doing all his own producing, recording, and mixing. And right now, he's working on a new EP called Fog Heart, which he expects to release next month. Terry said he wanted to put his own twist on Have You Ever Seen the Rain, a song that was made popular by Credence Clearwater Revival because a friend challenged him to do it. You can find out more about Nimbus Cloud on Instagram and SoundCloud, and you can stream him on Spotify. Well, let's have another listen to Have You Ever Heard the Rain by Nimbus Cloud. And we'll see you here next week for another episode of Ohio Mysteries. Someone told me.
Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the chumba life. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus.